Bibles tonight, if you would please, and we'll open them to Revelation chapter 14. And it is another great privilege that we can come to the Word of God tonight and talk a little bit more about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's just a great privilege. And we're looking into, I think, was it a, a very interesting study about the end times. And I'm not really going to give you a long introduction uh, to this sermon tonight. We're just going to go ahead and read the text and get right into the message. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're looking at the first five verses of chapter 14 in Revelation, uh, beginning verse number 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we're able to come back here tonight. Lord, I just pray that you'd... Uh, give us the message to preach tonight, to guide each word, and Lord, we just thank you for each one who's come to hear. Uh, give us a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The beginning of chapter 14 in Revelation is really just a refreshing respite from what we've been studying in chapters 12 and 13. In those two chapters, we were introduced to the satanic characters of the tribulation time. And we've had a chance to uh, look at the tribulation through Satan's eyes. And I think I need to remind you, perhaps once again, that the book of Revelation is not in chronological order. But there are certain passages in the book that are parenthetical. And so what we do sometimes as we study this and as the narrative goes on, it kind of backs up to things that we may have talked about before to give a little bit more explanation. And so uh, we won't find things necessarily again in chronological order. And so the 13th chapter of uh, Revelation took us back to the beginning of the tribulation. And there we saw the beginning of the Antichrist, the career of the Antichrist. And then it brought us all the way back up once again to the midpoint, to where we find the Antichrist at the zenith of his power. He brings together a coalition of the world's governments and consolidates the religious um, uh, different religions of the world and brings that into a cultish worship of his own image. The 13th chapter also described the power of the Antichrist to overcome believers and to kill them. And we ended that chapter with the unbelievers, those following the Antichrist, receiving the mark of the Antichrist. And that's what makes it possible for them to buy and sell because no one who has, doesn't have that mark can buy or sell and they are targeted for the Antichrist wrath. But when we begin this 14th chapter, we're reminded once again that God is in control. 
The rise of the Antichrist is not a threat to God's plan. In fact, all of this is a part of God's plan. It's another part of the fulfilling of it. And so just as we had in chapter 11 where John uh, stopped for just a moment and he gave the people hope and he told them about the final triumph of Christ. So we come here to chapter 14 and we find a change and we see a little bit of rest for the people of God and we understand once again that God is in control at a time when the when it looks like... Uh, the picture is becoming increasingly bleak. Now, chapter 14 is also, I think, a very humbling reminder of the difficulty of interpreting Revelation. Uh, this 14th chapter brings with it some controversy. Uh, the first verse says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And here we have this controversy that we discussed some time ago when we were in chapter 7. And who, is the, or who, is, who are these 144,000? What is their identity? Now, I really don't think that there ought to be too much controversy about it. And then there's also controversy about the location of this scene. Is this a scene in heaven? And does Mount Zion here refer to the New Jerusalem? Or is it a scene on the earth? And Mount Zion is the city of Jerusalem in Israel. And then also there's controversy about whether these 144,000 have been martyred. Uh, Are they now in their glorified bodies? And that's what they would have to have if the scene is in heaven. Or is this entire company of the 144,000 preserved throughout the entire tribulation? And do they come through that unscathed, not having died? And so here we see them in the millennial kingdom beginning to reign with Christ. Now, I have to confess to you that I've waffled between those two opinions, and uh, mostly in the past I've favored that uh, this, heavenly, this is a heavenly scene, and the 144,000 that are here uh, have been killed by the Antichrist. They were preserved only so long as God needed them for their witness, and then he allows them to be overcome, and they're martyred for the cause of Christ. But as I look into it a little bit more and I think about it some more, I, I perhaps favor a little bit more at this time that we're actually talking about an earthly scene. And these 144,000 have been sealed in chapter 7 and they have been preserved alive. And so they go through the tribulation without having been killed. Now that's really part of the difficulty that you have in interpreting the book. And I'm just not one who's so static as to say that I'm going to stick to one interpretation and what I have to say about it is absolutely right and there can be no other opinions. Now, in earlier lessons when we talked about this, I may have referred to the 144,000 as as having died, uh, all of them being killed, and now I may speak about them as if they survive. And I hope you don't hold that against me because uh, anyone, I think, who's so sure about this of all the finer details and think that they know it all, well, uh, they're simply deluded. So if this is a scene in heaven or if it's a scene on the earth, uh, it doesn't detract from the overall meaning of the Scriptures or the scheme of interpretation. And so we're not going to lead anyone astray if we look at this 14th chapter as talking about a scene in the millennial kingdom or a scene that's in heaven. And then I also want to say this about the overall interpretation of uh, Revelation. Uh, I've had times when I thought that it might be good that we would reevaluate the entire interpretation of the book. And so I've taken time to look at the amillenary position and the postmillenary position. And I've thought at times, well, there is perhaps some validity to what they believe. But then I really can't reconcile much of the Bible to those positions. I mean, both of those 
uh, particular positions leave us so much in the dark about the Old Testament scriptures and how that compares with the New Testament that I think it's almost impossible that we can't come to a premillenary position on this. And so I, I look at what the all-millenaries have done if, they, if they've tried to explain Revelation, that they come up with literally hundreds of interpretations on all these different details. And then the post-millenaries, uh, they go to the parables of Jesus, and they try to comb through all the parables and see if they can extrapolate something from those parables that I think probably wasn't originally intended. And so I, I think we stick then with the premillenary position, and it's not, though, without some slight variations of interpretation, and some of that variation is what we're, we'll find right here in the beginning of chapter 14. But all in all, that's the interpretation that remains the most cohesive and consistent and has the fewest difficulties with it. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, there were some of us that went down to Fremont, and we went to hear R.C. Sproul speak. And I thought it was kind of interesting that he admitted to having difficulty trying to decide between the all-mill positions and the, pre- and the post-mill position. And as he was trying to explain that, he even threw a little bit of pre-mill into it. So if he can't be precise about it, then I'm, I'm certainly not going to be concerned that I can't be about one little detail that we find here in chapter 14. So that's somewhat of an introduction to, to get us started here. So whichever this is, whether it's a scene in heaven or a scene on the earth, it's a very encouraging respite after reading chapter 13. So we're going to look at this for just a few minutes. Uh, the scene in verse 1 is Mount Zion. Now there you see in your King James Version that this is spelled S-I-O-N, but that is the same as Z-I-O-N, and the spelling is only different because it's translated from the Greek rather than the Hebrew. And so it's similar when you find in the New Testament the name Elijah and see that written as Elias, or you see Jeremiah written as Jeremy or Jonah as written as Jonas, and that's simply because uh, taking the translation from Greek rather than Hebrew. Mount Zion most of the time in Scripture, refers to Jerusalem. And there's sometimes when it's used to refer to the nation of Israel, uh, sometimes it refers to the entirety of the environs around Jerusalem and included many of the surrounding villages. Zion also in Scripture is a, a designation for the heavenly city of God. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. It says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So you can see why there's some difficulty in trying to interpret that, uh, interpret this particular passage. Are we talking about heaven, or are we actually talking about the earth? But I think the most important thing about the beginning of this chapter is not really the place, but it's the position. These saints that have gone through tribulation, they are now with Christ. And whether that's a scene in heaven or whether it's a scene on the earth really doesn't make a lot of difference because they are with Christ. Now, of course, if it's uh, in heaven, then they've come through the tribulation and, or they were killed and then gone into heaven and they're going to come back with Christ to rule and to reign with him. If it's a scene on the earth, then they made it all the way through the tribulation period. They're in the millennial kingdom and they're reigning with Christ. So I think that we can draw from this as great hope for Christians because no matter how bad that things get, we are not going to be utterly cast down. Times may be hard and we may receive persecution from the world, but when things appear to really be going against us, God is still in control and we won't be cast down. So I believe that what we're talking about here, these 144,000, are the very same ones that we read about in chapter 7. Now, back in chapter 7, in verses 2 through 4, 
It says, And I saw another angel ascending uh, from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. There are some who believe that this is talking about an entirely different group in chapter 14 from chapter 7. I don't think that that makes a whole lot of sense that we would have 144,000 exact number in both places and yet different people. So I think that we're safe in calling these 144,000 the 12,000 who have come out of each of the tribes of Israel. And these are special witnesses of God during the tribulation period. So we're not talking here about Jehovah Witnesses and they aren't Mormons and they aren't Seventh-day Adventists, but they are uh, 12,000 Jews from each of Israel's tribes. Now this evening... And for the next lesson, we've got a part number two of this next week. I have uh, a few uh, one-word descriptions of these people. So you've got one word to fill in there on your outline. And uh, that one word has a lot of explanation, a lot of other words to go with that. But the first word is the word conduct. The word conduct. Now, if you'll notice in the beginning of verse number four, it says, These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. The tribulation period will be the most wicked and vile period in all the history of the world. It's a time of vice and corruption. It's a time when people will live out to the very depths of their depravity. And we often talk about that. Uh, We speak of the doctrine of total depravity. Some people are a little bit confused about that, and they don't know what that means. Well, it doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he can be, but it means that every facet of man's being is tainted with sin. He's wicked in every part of his being. And so that means that his conscience is defiled, his mind is reversed, his actions are against God. There's nothing that man can do that's holy and righteous in the eyes of God, but we're not as wicked as we could be. And that's because much of the wickedness of the world is restrained. God has seen fit that he holds back much of the moral evil of the world. And he does that because there is the potential in every human heart to to be a murderer and a rapist and a thief, a child molester. Every one of us has that potential in our hearts to be that kind of a person. But for the good of society and for the... um, preservation of man, God has decided to to hold us back from some of the sins that we could commit. And so the Holy Spirit is here to restrain men from evil. And even those that are lost get some benefit from that. Because again, if the Holy Spirit didn't restrain us, then we would find ourselves all of the time in this period, just like the tribulation period. Here men are more wicked and vile than they've ever been in all the history of the world. And so we thank God for that, that uh, he does restrain the evil But here at this time, the Holy Spirit restraining power is taken out of the world, and so men begin to live to the depths of their depravity. And the remarkable thing about these these 144,000 that are specially chosen out by God is that they don't join in in all that perverseness of the world. I think every one of us here, we can attest to how difficult that it is to live a Christian life. We know all about those temptations. It's very hard for us to keep ourselves morally pure in the most secret moments of our lives because there is so much temptation around us. And so many Christians, when they're not living in times as bad as the tribulation will be, don't keep themselves morally pure. But here it says these people are not defiled. It says they're virgins. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're unmarried. Marriage is not defiling. It simply means that they're sexually pure, that they don't engage in all the debauchery of men that's going on around them. And we also have to be reminded that at this time, the Antichrist has this cultish worship. I mean, sexual perversion has been one of the the things that's always been the hallmarks of pagan religions and pagan cultish worship. I've mentioned to you before that I was much more aware of the difficulties that Israel had in trying to uh, be pure in their worship when we made that trip to Israel and we were able to see the, the ruins of the Canaanite civilization in Israel and how there's still evidence of fertility cults and glorified acts of human reproduction in those, in those uh, artifacts that you find. I remember when we went to the city of Dan in northern Israel and and there they had a place where Jeroboam II's throne sat, and right next to his throne was a phallic symbol. And in Hazor, which was the largest Canaanite city in Israel at the time, there's evidence there, much evidence of fertility worship. And then there are many scholars who say that when Elijah had his contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that when uh, those prophets of Baal were marching around the altar and they were trying to call down fire from Baal, uh, getting their, trying to get their God to consume the sacrifice, that much of that circling around that altar involved all kinds of sexual practices. And the reason they did that was because Baal was a fertility god. And then as we come into the New Testament, the Greek and Roman world was involved in those types of practices. When Paul went to preach in Corinth, he, he preached the gospel in places where there were temple prostitutes. That was a part of their worship. Homosexuality was rampant at that time. And you can imagine all of the temptation that was placed in front of the apostle Paul. And he had to keep himself pure from that so that he could preach the gospel. But you take all of that. All of these things that, you, that were going on in the ancient world and all of the things that were going on in the Canaanite civilization and Rome and, and, uh, and Babylon and all these cities of the Old Testament, and you multiply that over hundreds and hundreds of times, and you'll have a picture of the tribulation. No sexual restraint, no decency standards of any kind. People are free to do whatever they want to do, as much as they want to do. And so you see the kind of temptation that's placed in front of these 144,000 witnesses. And I could imagine that Satan specifically targets them. And he goes after them with as much temptation as he can. And he tries to get them to, to give in to the lust of the human heart. But these are people that are dedicated to God, and so they refuse to do it. Now, they have just a remarkable character in being able uh, to resist the temptation of Satan. Now, I think that that is just a very striking reminder for each of us here that we also have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And that power that we have is well capable of keeping us from following our temptations. So we don't have, have to go into sin. We don't have an excuse to sin. I mean, these are people that are going to face far greater temptations than we'll ever see. And yet, they did not give up. They didn't relent and give in to that temptation. So they have conduct. That's becoming of saints. Peter tells us about the end times, and he says that Christ is coming to dissolve the earth, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And I want you to listen to how he follows that up. He says, Seeing then... 
that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? What manner of persons, he says, ought you to be? Well, holy and godly, that's what we ought to be, and that's what these men are. Now, I, I, they understand the Christ that they serve, and they are committed to him. And so that brings us then to the next word that describes them, and that's the word consecration. Consecration is their commitment. Now, I want you to listen to the uh, next phrase in verse 4. It says, These are they that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Now, how would you like to have that written on your epitaph? Here is a person who followed Christ wherever Christ would go. And that's what these are. These are faithful witnesses. If someone was called upon to counter the false claims of the Antichrist, these are the ones that stood up and told the truth. When they were told that they couldn't preach, these were the people that kept on preaching. And when they were told that they couldn't pray in the name of Christ, these are the ones that kept on praying. And I'm reminded of the story in Daniel, how that he was told that he couldn't pray. There was a law that was passed that said that no one could uh, ask a petition of any god but the king only. And if someone were to ask or pray to another god, pray to someone beside the king, then that person was going to be thrown into the den of lions. And do you know what it says in Daniel? In Daniel chapter 6 it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his god as he did aforetime. So they couldn't stop Daniel from praying. He went on just like he always did, and that resulted in a trip to the lion's den. But Daniel had God's seal. God was protecting him. He wouldn't permit him to be eaten by those hungry lions. And so that's just like these 144,000. These have been sealed with God's protection. And so whatever time that God needs them, they will remain faithfully consecrated to him. A few days ago, I was having lunch with... uh, Eric and uh, Ella Hill, and we were talking about the military. And I was explaining to them how that our son-in-law, Jason, is a lay leader on his ship. And um, before they can eat before they eat their meals on the ship, if someone wants to say a prayer, they have to have special permission from the captain to do that. Now, it's normally the, the uh, chaplain's job to say the prayers, and on his particular ship, the captain would not allow anyone to pray publicly unless they had his special, special permission. So I was talking to Eric about that, and he said, well, I'd like to see them try to stop me from praying. And that's the kind of people that these men are. These are consecrated men. They love the Lord, and they stand up for him when needed, and they defend their faith, and they proclaim the God that they serve. Now, folks, I I think we need some more people like that. Uh, A couple of months ago, we were having a meeting at the the deacons' meeting, it was, and we were talking about church finances, and we were uh, talking about, uh, well, how do we get our offerings up, and how do we get people to give? And the secret to that is people to be dedicated and consecrated to the Lord. And we also talked about how how you get your giving up is you go out and you reach people, and you get people to come in, and you win people to the Lord, and they help to support the work that we do. But the question is, how are we going to do that? Well, if we are so timid that we won't speak to anyone and we won't stand up for the Lord and declare our faith, then you can be sure we're not going to be able to build a church. The best way you build a church is by networking. You just go to work and you 
have the people that you work with there, and you begin to share your faith with them. You tell them about the Lord. You invite them to come to church. And when you do it, you can be sure there's going to be opposition. People are going to look at you with sidelong glances, and they're not going to like what you do. But if you're going to follow the Lamb, you have to be willing to be identified with Him. We read in the Acts of the Apostles how that the apostles were told that they couldn't preach in the name of Christ. And they said, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And that's what these 144,000 are. I mean, they're just an unimaginable force for the Lord. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like if you could get 144,000 people that would dedicate themselves to the Lord in this way? I was reading about this, and I, I don't particularly remember exactly where I read this. But uh, one, one person said, I, he says, I don't think that we could find 144,000 in all the world today that are people like this that would follow the Lamb wherever he goes. You know, I tend to think that's true. And I wonder, why is it that we can't get 1,000 people to stand up for the Lord and follow him wherever he goes? And I wonder why we can't get 500. And I especially wonder why we can't even get 100 right here in Berean Baptist Church that will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. You know the reason that we can't? One of the reasons that we, we don't follow the Lamb wherever he goes is because we're following something else. One of the things that we're following today is the pocketbook. And so what Americans and what Christian Americans are doing, we're following the economy wherever it goes. And so if we can find someone who will give us a little bit of relief to our pocketbook and promise us the moon, the moon, it really doesn't matter what else he believes. It doesn't matter if he's godless and if he supports abortion, if he uh, supports homosexuals and every wicked lifestyle imaginable. It doesn't matter to us because we're following the pocketbook wherever it goes. And the same is true in preaching. People flock to churches that concentrate on the pocketbook and they preach a gospel of wealth. Now, some of these preachers uh, couldn't even clearly articulate the true gospel of Christ. When they're asked about that, they're flustered. Uh, Osteen uh, was asked about this, and, and Osteen said, well, I don't know. He had to issue an apology uh, after a Larry King interview when old Larry, that agnostic Jew, cornered him about believing in Christ, and he didn't know how to answer him. Then another interview called him out because of a book that he'd written that didn't have any mention of God or Christ. And so apparently Osteen thinks that uh, the way to be truly prosperous is not, not to follow God, but to follow the money. And so when confronted with the Lamb of God, the only thing Osteen could say was, I don't know. Same thing happened with Rick Warren. He was stymied by Larry King as well. He was asked a very simple question about the gospel of Christ, and he couldn't answer in, a, in an articulate manner that question. And here he is, a person who's wrote one of the best-selling books of all time that's supposed to tell us what our purpose in life is. And he couldn't even articulate the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm asking you, is that somebody who follows the Lamb wherever he goes? You know, I scarcely believe that they would even know who the Lamb is if he was standing right in front of him. And they wouldn't know which way to go. So these 144,000, these, these are people that, brave, that are brave wherever necessary. They go wherever it's necessary. They speak whenever necessary because they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now we notice back in chapter 13 that these uh, are among the redeemed who refuse to receive the mark of the beast. Now that mark, again, is what enables people to buy and sell. I mean, that's really the guarantee that, that a person would have some measure of prosperity. 
And if you don't have the mark, no one buys or sells. And so there is no prosperity. And I've wondered about that. You know, I wonder if Osteen wrote his books during the tribulation time, uh, what his directions for prosperity would be. And I can almost promise you this, that his direction would be, take the mark of the beast, because there's no prosperity without it. Now, you wonder, why would I say something like that? Well, have you ever thought about it? If the prosperity gospel is true, then what about the time of tribulation? How are they going to have their new cars and their vacation homes and their diamond rings? How are they going to get it? They can't buy and they can't sell. You see, it doesn't matter to these people because they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They're not following a genie who grants all their wishes. And then you wonder something else about this, I think. I mean, I mean, how many times have you heard those preachers say this? They say, take what God gives you and put your prosperity back into the kingdom of God. How many times have you heard that? What I hear is, put it in your pocket, buy your big car, buy your big house, buy your, buy your diamond ring, show off your wealth. You're one of God's kids. And so God wants you to be prosperous. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. But what about taking the seeds that have been sown and God blesses and putting them back into God's kingdom. There's a difference. Now, you're not going to find them doing that because they're not following the lamb wherever he goes. So he goes where he leads, or he leads us where he wants us to go, and he doesn't lead people into this kind of nonsense that you hear being preached today. So, folks, I think what we see here is that the book of Revelation is is just like the rest of the Bible. This is an intensely practical book. And what we find here is a model for us. We find things that we can learn here. There are examples that are set. There's encouragement for us. Tribulations and trials come. Living for the Lord is very difficult. There's all the temptation and fear that's out there. But all of that can be overcome when you follow the Lamb wherever he goes. You know, I can imagine John's audience in the first century, uh, they're hearing John say such things as this and about the Antichrist, and much more than us, they could relate to what's being said. I mean, here they, they were living in the middle of persecution. Polycarp, who was that great disciple of John, was taken and burned at the stake just a short time after this. And by this time, all of the apostles except John had been uh, met their deaths at, at the hands of, of this Roman Empire. And now as... John begins to give them the revelation, and he says these kinds of things. What do they have to look forward to? I mean, mostly, they're going to meet the very same, same deaths that he's talking about. If they take a stand for Christ, they're going to meet these deaths too. But we come to chapter 14, and he starts out with these faithful witnesses, and he begins with this group that's in persecution. These people that are be persecuted in such a way that the world has never seen before or never shall see except those end times. And what does he say happens to them? Scripture says that they stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And that's because they followed him wherever he goes. They didn't surrender to anybody but him. And so now they're rewarded. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They're redeemed, friends, and oh, how they love to proclaim it. Now let me finish with another thought. I have some more words that I'm going to give you in the next lesson, but about this special group, but, but I, I want to talk just about something else for just a, just a moment here to close. The people that John wrote to were living in a different age. I mean, they lived before the tribulation. And, of course, we're living in a time before the tribulation as well. So we're all living in the church age. And we see here in verse number 3 that these men are different from the 24 elders. They're, they're not represented in that group. 
Now, I'm going to take you back a long time in our study, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but those 24 elders are representative of all those who have been redeemed from God all the way from the Old Testament period all the way into the time that Christ came, the apostles all the time, all the people living at the time of John, all the way up to this present age and up to the time of the rapture. That's who these 24 elders represent. Now, the, the 144,000 are not represented in that group of 24 elders. Now, even though they're holy and, and they're righteous, they're redeemed, they're sanctified, they're serving God, and yet they're not from the most privileged group that's in heaven. They don't hold the rank of these others. I mean, they, they don't have the rank that we would have because we live in the church age and we're going to be a part of the bride of Christ. And yet these people who don't have that privilege of being in the bride, they're faithful and they follow the Lamb. They have exemplary conduct and total consecration to God. And so in the words of Peter, he says, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? See, what excuse do we have? I mean, if they can live like this, and they don't have the privilege that we have, they are going to be in heaven, but not the privilege of being a part of the Lord's bride. And yet, we won't follow the Lord or follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, I want to ask you about your own life. What is there in your life that you need to discard so that you can follow the Lamb? Now, if you're not saved, this is not about what you have to give up and giving up things in life. You don't have to worry about what you're going to give up because you can't follow the Lamb and you can't learn where the Lamb is going unless you know him as Savior. You first have to have followed him to the cross before you can follow him in this way. And then thinking about those that are saved, uh, it's a good question for all of us. What, what is there in our lives that's really preventing us from following the Lamb wherever he goes? Many of us are not consecrated. We have so many things that are in our lives. The Apostle Paul said that what we must do is to set aside the weight and that sin that does so easily beset us. And you may need to look into your own life, as I do into mine, and find out what is that sin that's keeping me from following Christ wherever he goes. I think the scriptures teach that there's a very high cost of discipleship. And you have to be willing to accept that cost in order to obey Christ's command when he said, follow me. So I would encourage all of you to do that. I encourage everyone here, if you, if you want to stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion, then you need to start following the Lamb wherever he goes. That's a promise that we have, that he's coming back to redeem us. Our final redemption, we're going to receive a glorified body. And just to be able to stand with him, to rule with him, and to reign with him in that kingdom that we talked about this morning, what a blessing that's going to be. It comes to those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just so thankful that we have the scriptures to read and we can learn these things. And we do need to have some very, very deep introspection into our lives. Most, if not all, of the people here tonight, I believe, are saved. And there are many members of Berean Baptist Church who didn't see fit to come tonight. Maybe there's reasons why they can't. But there are a lot of folks, a lot of members, who won't come to the other services of the church. And all we can say is they've decided they're not going to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Lord, I just pray that we would be dedicated people, consecrated people, that we would be people who would obey you, that command, the very first command that you gave those disciples, follow me. So, Lord, we pray that you might bless us and help us to do that. 
Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.